wounded husband to her breast. It is also claimed, even in the reputable publications of English heritage, that this queen's maniacal laughter and agonised screams can be heard on stormy nights at Castle Rising in Norfolk, one of her favoured residences. The belief still persists that, demented and insane, she was kept a prisoner here for twenty-eight years and her unquiet ghost is also said to walk the secret passages below Nottingham Castle. She is believed to be searching in vain for her lost lover. There is no doubt that the legends about Isabella of France paint a picture of a tragic, tormented, cruel, and essentially evil woman. And indeed, her historical reputation is not much more favourable. Since 1327, she has been more vilified than any other English queen. In her own lifetime, the chronicler Geoffrey Le Baker called her that Harridan or that Virago, referring to her as Jezebel, and to her episcopal followers as priests of Baal. Other chroniclers, although more discreet, were equally disapproving. In 1592, in his play The Tragedy of Edward II, Christopher Marlowe wrote scathingly of that unnatural queen, false Isabel, and had Edward refer to her as my unconstant queen who spots my nuptial bed with infamy. So too, in his controversial 1991 filmed adaptation of the play, the director, Derek Jarman, showed little sympathy for Isabella, portraying her as a sexually repressed virago. Shakespeare had invented the epithet She-Wolf of France for Margaret of Anjou, the scheming, vindictive wife of Henry VI. But in the 18th century, when England was at war with France, the poet Thomas Gray applied it to Isabella, and it has stuck ever since. In his The Bard, 1757, He speaks with horrific significance of the she-wolf of France with unrelenting fangs that terraced the bowels of thy mangled mate. In the 20th century, the German playwright and poet Bertolt Brecht revived the same theme in his life of Edward II of England. In this, Isabella declares, I shall become a she-wolf, ranging bare-toothed through the scrub, not resting until earth covers Edward, drenched by the rain of exile, hardened by foreign winds. And in 1960, in his novel The She-Wolf of France, the acclaimed French writer Maurice Drouin describes Isabella as having small, sharp, pointed carnivore's teeth, like those of a she-wolf. Thus the legend has become deeply entrenched in the popular consciousness. Isabella has fared little better with the historians. In the mid-19th century, Agnes Strickland wrote loftily that since the days of the fair and false Elfrida, who is believed to have arranged the murder of her stepson, King Edward the Martyr, in 979, no Queen of England has left so dark a stain on the annals of female royalty as Isabella, who is the only instance of a Queen of England acting in open and shameless violation of the duties of her high vocation 
allying herself with traitors and foreign agitators against her king and husband, and staining her name with the combined crimes of treason, adultery, murder, and regicide. This proved almost too much for Miss Strickland, with her highly developed Victorian moral values, and her account was strictly bowdlerized. But even more modern historians have little that is good to say about Isabella, and most repeat the calumnies of the old chroniclers. In 1955, V. H. H. Green called her a woman of no real importance or attraction, which is as inaccurate as it is dismissive. While in 1967, Kenneth Fowler denigrated her as a woman of evil character, a notorious schemer who was infamous for her marital inconstancy, although he did concede that this was in part excused by her.